right, so how's your Christmas going so far? How's it going? Pretty good? Pretty good? All right, good? All right, all right. I hear a lot of pretty good okays and fines. Um, I've not met anybody yet who's like, this is the best Christmas ever. It's over the top. And uh, woo. people would look at you and go, you need to leave because it's a little different for most of us, right? Uh, you know, for us, I could put our Christmas week so far in the okay category. It's going fine, right? Uh, we did have to cancel our trek to Texas. That's a really fun time to enjoy, you know, the day after Christmas out there. Then New Year with all kinds of Texas style, you know, mortars and rockets and things that are legal out there that aren't here. And then um, since my daughter was born uh, on New Year's Day, we say Happy New Year to each other, and then we sing her Happy happy Birthday and one present and cake and all that. So it's kind of a thing. She has never experienced her birthday here in California. And so it's a whole new deal for her. So all of her traditions that she so looks forward to and the rest of the family uh, just aren't happening this year. We're trying creative ways to connect, uh, you know, but it's just not the same. Uh, we've had to say no to a lot of things, you know, little gatherings and Christmas parties and staff parties, things like that. It's just different. Um, and in addition, you know, two nights ago, a load of, loads of fun at the Treadway House, um, a couple of people got onto our property and stole some stuff. So, you know, there's some security footage from our neighbor's camera. And, uh, you know, there they are driving up. And I'm going to find them. I'm going to hunt them down because they took my golf clubs. Yeah. I mean, take my dogs, take my kids. Not the golf clubs, man. And so they went through mailboxes and anyway, they got into our property. And enough of that. It makes me mad. So anyway, that happened a couple of nights ago. So, you know, we just, my wife said yesterday that there wasn't even hardly a feeling about it. You know, it's just, it's 2020, you know, we're not okay with it, but what are we going to do? You know, we'll do what we have to, but you know, it's 2020 and there are people going through a lot worse and having your golf clubs, and although my sunglasses were pretty cool, I can't, I can't replace those. They're not made anymore. But anyway, um, it is 2020, and so a lot of us are kind of making the most out of uh, some tough stuff, or at least some different kind of things. But there are some who are really hurting, some who are really struggling, many afraid that their family members are at risk, afraid of losing their income with the economy, just open, closed, and you know, sometimes just nonsense in terms of how it impacts people's jobs. Uh, too many businesses are at risk of closing, restaurant owners, gyms, salons. Uh, many are actually sick and many have lost their lives. I've had three friends now die of COVID, one just a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and there's a loss there in these families, particularly their deep, deep losses. And for all of us, we're kind of sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? You're just kind of done with it. And the phrase I've heard most is, I'm over this, right? And then we're closing out 2020. I think we're pretty thankful for that. There seems to be better days coming in 2021. Some good news on the science front and, you know, get out of winter and things like that. We ought to, you know, see some light of day out there, right? But here's the premise for the day that I want us to consider. The light we may want may not be the light we really need. The better days ahead that we want may really not be based on the things that we need. So I'm going to go over just a couple of things that we might want and a few things that are good, but they may not be really what we need. So follow me here. We might want normalcy. Have you heard that uh, term normal? I've heard the term normal. I'm done with the word normal. (laughs) When's normal coming back? Every other article you read or every news program you watch, what's the countdown to normalcy? And, And I get that, right? Because as we think back, you know, to the days of of old, uh, you know, March, (laughs) February, we had a normal rhythm. Things were going okay. There there was this news of this disease coming our way. We didn't take it real seriously at the time. 
Um, but uh, we were living pretty decent lives. We were doing our thing, right? And so there's this sort of memory of normal, and we want normal. We want normal. Um, we want to get back to that rhythm. But as I recall normal in America, again, all the way back to last February, as I recall normal in America, didn't seem to be perfect bliss to me. There's some things that were going okay. But normal in America was still a mess with political divisions and racial divisions that are still continuing today. Uh, we live in a nation of a lot of anxieties and emotional distresses and addictions and family struggles and a pandemic of loneliness. I mean, our country, our normal, wasn't exactly rainbows and unicorns. Again, there's a lot to be thankful for in that. We would certainly use that you know, more than we'll take today, but it really wasn't you know, this bliss. It was better, so we want it back, but I think we have to be a little bit sober-minded about what it was. And really, how much do we want to get back to normal? Or maybe can we get back to better? We'll talk about that in the new year, right? That, by the way, that was an unintended uh, political slogan. I did not mean that. <laughs> but normal isn't necessarily uh, the, the, the light, I think, that we might think it was. Uh, in fact, the nation of Israel wanted to go back to normal. When they were wandering in the wilderness, if you know your Sunday school stories, they were released from Egypt, they were released from slavery, and they're wandering around the wilderness having all kinds of trouble with water, with food, with infighting and wars. I mean, they're trying to become their own people in their own land, and they're having all kinds of trouble. And in their trouble, they said, you know what? I, I think we want to go back to normal, which was slavery in Egypt, Right? So Numbers 14.3 says this, why is the Lord taking us to this land only to have us die? Wouldn't it be better for us to return to normal? And God reminds them, listen, a return to the past or a return to normal or a return to comfort is not really what I'm doing. God's moving us forward. And, and as he moves us forward, sometimes that forward is, is a little uncomfortable. Sometimes that forward is a little painful. But God doesn't want us going backwards. He doesn't want us to go back to normal. He wants us to go forward to something even better. So while this normal that we're talking about sounds great, sounds better than we're experiencing right now, I'm not sure normal is really the light we need. Might be the light we want, but it's not the light we need. How about politics? Politics is, is also something we want to, you know, kind of see our way happen. The light of politics. Now, you look at the light of politics, you think uh, those two words don't go. But... There's never been, at least in my memory, a time where we have been so attached to our politicians or so attached to our political parties. I mean, it, it has become something really spectacular to watch, this attachment to political parties, almost like the hope for the future is my guy getting into office, my girl getting into office, my political party advancing. That's the light of the world. That's what I want. I want my party to win. And listen, I understand that. I, I've been a political creature since I was in middle school. I was kind of overly interested in politics, and, and still to a degree, you know, I am today. It's interesting to me, but I don't think it's the light of the world. And, and, I, and I understand what it's like to have your people, your group, your girl, your guy, your party win. It's almost like, you know, being a fan of a team. When your team wins, there's a sense that I won in this. And when your team loses, there's a little sense that I lost in this. And so whether you're team won or didn't this last election, you know, sometimes we might buy into the fact that, well, since my team won, there's going to be more light. If my team lost, there's going to be more darkness. We buy into that. We buy into the political machinery. 
And I just want to keep encouraging us. Don't buy into the political machinery. I'm not saying politics isn't important. It is. And I'm not saying politicians don't have a very meaningful calling. They absolutely do. But politics is not the light of the world. Never has been. In fact, you you look at the scripture, and here again you see Israel, and they've become their own nation, and they have their own land, and they look around to other you know, kingdoms, and they say, well, they have kings. Why don't we have a king? And so they're begging God, we want a king. We want our guy. We want our politician to bring light to this nation. And God gives them a warning through Samuel. Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. And the rest of 1 Samuel 8 goes on to say, you know what, these kings, these authorities, these politicians, they'll send your sons to war. They'll take your money through taxes. They'll take from your business, and your land won't be truly your own. Sound familiar? It's just what government does, right? And so that was warned in, in 1 Samuel 8. You want a king? Well, you're going to get a king, and it's going to be just like every other politician. They're going to send you to war, take your money through taxes. Your business or your land won't be your own. And this warning ends for Samuel 8, 18. When that day comes and you have your king, you will beg for relief from that king, (laughs) but there will be no help for you. In other words, if we put our hope in politician and politics and governmental authorities, we will be disappointed. We might think it's light, getting our guy or girl in there, getting our political party. We might think that's light. We might think that that will mean better days ahead, but there will be disappointment because that's not truly the light that we need. So while our political party winning sounds great, I'm not sure political power is really the light we need. How about prosperity? Good old-fashioned money. How about that? That sounds like light, doesn't it? Especially when we are in an economically depressed period, when our incomes might be less than they were, when our very jobs are threatened. You know, we might think the light that I need to get me through this darkness is little more money, little more prosperity, right? That's really the light that I want. Now, to be clear, money is the idol of the United States of America. Just is. There's no way around it. Money is the idol of the United States of America. Everything is looked through the lens of money in our country. That might be a little bit of an overstatement, but not a lot. Even in politics, what's the phrase that's become so popular in politics? It's the economy, stupid. So politicians can talk about all kinds of stuff. But really, it's about money. Money. Even people of faith Vote on the basis of money. And this is, you know, really a, a tragic thing for me to have heard so many times, so many hundreds, even thousands of times of, is people of faith who know the heart of God voting because that person is going to bring more prosperity, more money. And I'm just not quite sure that that light is really the light we need. In fact, in the Bible, money is always talked about as a good thing unless you love it. Money's a good thing unless you love it. I mean, money's the stuff you use to buy stuff, right? And if you want stuff, you gotta have the stuff to buy the stuff. That's money. It's stuff to buy stuff. And and but when it's considered a value, even to the point of a near idol in this country where everything is bowing to prosperity and how do we get more prosperity? How do we get better lifestyles? How do we get more and bigger. I mean, that's just America. It's the way it's always been. I love our country. I don't love our love for money. But it's part of human nature, right? It's part of human nature. And it's in all of us, myself included. You know, we got to battle this all the time. You know, stop the love of money. Stop the love of the stuff that money buys, right? It's a constant discipline. First Timothy 6 puts it this way. 
teach those who are rich in this world. And by the way, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are rich in this world. If we have uh, food, if we have a roof over our head, if we have running water, if we have clothes on our back um, and a choice of what to wear on any given day, uh, we're in the top 5% of wealth in America, right? Now, not everybody's got that privilege, but a lot of people do, right? That's wealth. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. Don't be proud, don't trust in money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So there's, there's nothing wrong with having the stuff to buy the stuff and enjoy the stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't put our hope in that. It is unreliable. The economy grows, the economy fails. The economy thrives, the economy you know, recesses. It's just the way it goes. It's unreliable. So stop the love of money and stop bowing to it. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. So money is not just the stuff we use to buy stuff. Money is the stuff that we can use to help others. That's where the values really come, the value of God to be, to be generous and to help people that are in need. And so money really in and of itself can do some helpful things, but it's not the light of the world. While more money feels better than having less money, <laughs> I can tell you from personal experience, I'm not sure money is really the light we need. How about humanitarianism? It would be very understandable for us to say, well, in a season of need, humanitarianism is the light ahead. If we're, if we're more you know, generous and if we're more kind and if we are lifting up people who are struggling, humanitarianism is the light of the world. And I will tell you that I would agree in part. I would agree in part. This one makes a lot of sense to me. If we're just nicer, if we're just kinder people, if we're just more generous, if we just help those people who are in need, then the light will come in these dark days. Now, I do agree with that, but in part. So let me explain. Humanitarianism is defined this way. It's a concern with and seeking to promote human flourishing. So human flourishing is one of those kind of buzzwords of our culture today, and I actually love that word. I fully adopted that word, human flourishing. I just love it. It, it just feels good. You know, it feels like people are, just need to thrive and enjoy. So it's not just about basic subsistency. It's about living our lives so that the people around us will truly thrive and, and just overflow with happiness, right? The flourishing, and it's for everybody, right? Not just for me or my family or my circle of friends, but it's for everybody. And, and humanitarians would, would have this experience that if anyone isn't flourishing, that's my problem. It's not just their problem to go fix. It's my problem. If anybody, even the stranger, if they're not flourishing, it's my problem and somehow I can help them. I can't help everything and, and help everybody, but I can certainly do my part to see to it that there is human flourishing on the earth. A concern with and seeking to promote human flourishing. And if you read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you will see that the heart of God is for human flourishing. Because the Old Testament is, is really kind of about God looking at the devastation and darkness on the earth, his heart breaking, so a concern, but then acting to ensure human flourishing. I'll give you an example. In Isaiah 49, God is looking at the devastation that's all over the earth, and he's saying this, there will come a day where I will say to the prisoners, come out in freedom and to those in darkness, come into the light. Uh, they will be my sheep grazing in green pastures and on hills that were previously bare. They will neither hunger nor thirst. The searing sun will not reach them anymore. 
Keep saying searing and Siri pops up. Stop it. For the Lord in his mercy will lead them and will lead them beside cool waters. And I will make my mountains into level paths for them. The highways will be raised above the valley. Isn't that a cool sort of poetic vision? God is saying, listen, I'm seeing the darkness. I'm seeing the devastation. I'm seeing the suffering. But there will come a day where I will say, listen, rise, flourish. If you're in prison, you'll be free. If you are hungry, you will eat. You will graze in green pastures. If you're in the deepest valley, I will raise that valley and you will live on a mountain. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is always humanitarian. And so you look at the heart of God, which is humanitarian, and then you look at the life of the church, and sometimes you've got some work to do. Uh, and I'm not going to get too deep on this, but there is this concept of Christian humanism. Christian humanism, which I'm telling you, I am very, very warm to. I'm going to cause people maybe to freak out a little less by saying Christian humanitarianism. That's probably better. You know, humanism is, is that human's work? No, it's, it's God's work through human beings. So this thing is, is emerging in our culture and in the Christian church, and it has a little kind of temporary tag called Christian humanitarianism, right? And it's the idea that our humanitarianism, our kindness to one another, our physical, tangible, real-world help to one another is, in fact, doing the very work of God. We see God's a humanitarian God. We see it throughout his revelation of himself throughout the Scripture. We see it in Jesus I mean, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just pretend that you're following him around with everything he does and everything he says, you will see a humanitarian at work. Jesus is a humanitarian at work. And every once in a while, he'll come across religious people having religious conversations about, oh, what law is best? Uh, you know, what, what uh, you know, truth in God's word is priority? Or what's the interpretation of this passage in scripture? And Jesus is just like, hey, let me tell you, there's a lot of work to be done around here. How about we love other people, not just with word, but with action? Jesus is always, always pointing us away from these debates about the theoretical or theological and putting us to work. Now listen, I'm a Bible student. I'll talk about theology all day long. No problem. I actually love it. But I'm not much interested in it anymore. <laughs> I used to be totally interested in debates about theology. I love theology. I think the more we can get right about what we believe about God, the better off we're going to be. But I see constantly, time and time and time and time again, the heart of God in the Old Testament, the life of Jesus, and the life of the early church pointing us away from doctrinal debates that divide and into action, humanitarian action. Now, very famously, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is leading the crowds, and there's crowds all around him. This is right before he's arrested. There's crowds all around him, and there's all kinds of debates. It's, a, it's during a religious festival, and so there's all kinds of debates about how to do this religious festival and what the religious festivals mean and all this stuff. And Jesus makes it really clear. He says, my priority in life that you visit those in prison, feed those who are hungry, and clothe those who are naked. Visit those who are sick. That's the priority. And there's confusion because all, we're, all the religious people are doing is talking about debates about the law and what the word says and interpretation and how to obey the law. And Jesus says, listen, do the stuff. Do the humanitarian work. So the righteous, as Jesus is kind of imagining this, this eternal conversation, the righteous will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and gave you something to drink? 
When were you ever a stranger, and when did we ever show you hospitality, or when were you naked, and when did we give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Humanitarianism is the priority of God himself. Not necessarily debating about theology this and that and truth this or that, but real tangible action to see to it that the people around us who are struggling flourish. Paul had a little something to say in, in Romans 14. Accept other believers who are weak in faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. In other words, don't argue about the debatable matters. That's a more accurate translation. Those who are weaker in faith want to talk about everything. Those who are stronger in faith want to do stuff to help people in need. That's why our mission statement is we're a diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ through mercy, justice, and love. It's action. We don't advance the cause of Christ by arguing about end times. I'm so sick of these arguments about how things began and how things will end and this little minutia of, of doctrinal stuff, seeking the idol of truth. It's like there's a place for that. But the real heart of God, as we see in Scripture, is make the lives of others better. Cause them to flourish. So while humanitarianism is truly beautiful, and it really is beautiful, right? And I'm arguing for it, full-throated arguing for it. While humanitarianism is truly beautiful and the center of the cause of Christ, I'm not sure humanitarianism alone is the light we need. And, and this is the transition to Christmas. Because all the things that we talked about today, going back to normal, that's attractive. Having our political party in power, that's attractive. More wealth, more prosperity, that's attractive. Humanitarianism, that's attractive. That all has its place, but none of that is the true light of Christ. None of that is the true light of Christ. They can be good things. But just to keep in mind, the light that we want might not be the light that we really need. So what is the light we really need? The light we really need is a new light. We need the dawn of a new light. Kind of back to normal, getting our circumstances back to normal, or getting our politician in power, or wealth and prosperity, even humanitarianism, as good as that is. All of that stuff is kind of old, worn light and never really changes the heart. Never really changes the heart. So we need the dawn of a new light, and that's what happened on Christmas morning. That first Noel, the first Christmas morning, was the dawn of a new light. It was a new light that purely came from God to us. It wasn't anything that we did to kind of, you know, create our own light. It's nothing we did to try to create light that impresses God or helps each other. It's purely what God did for us. He says, I'm going to blaze my light and the glory of my light to the earth. I'm just going to do it on my own. It's not generated from any man-made faith system. We talked about that last week. It's not generated from any man-made values. It's not generated from any man-made institutions. This light is a whole new light that's generated 100% from heaven itself to earth. It's a new light. And the dawn of a new light is simply Emmanuel. That new light is Emmanuel. You know what the word Emmanuel means? It's a Christmas word that means God with us. That's the beauty of Christmas. God in his sovereign providence decided to write himself into our history through one human being, and that's Jesus. The dawn of a new light is Emmanuel, God with us. 
God with us. Matthew 1, 23, a virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the new light directly from heaven. Not lesser lights of things that we create, our own wealth, our prosperity, our politics, our normalcy, our humanitarianism. That's light that we create. And we struggle to create that light. And there is some light there. There's no question about that. But it's light that we generate. Christmas morning is the light of heaven that God generated. He shined it through his son, Jesus Christ, for all of us to see. For all of us to see. And and what this light is, it's a belief. Now, this might sound a little strange because we're talking about a belief. And while money is a tangible thing and our politicians a tangible thing and our normal circumstances are a tangible thing and humanitarianism is a tangible thing and they're all very good, the light of heaven is a belief which doesn't feel very tangible. But what we believe determines everything about our lives. So what we believe determines how we live, it determines how we love, it determines what we do with our lives and our resources. It determines everything. So what we believe is of utmost importance. And so what we're talking about is believing that the creator would write himself into his creation by fully expressing himself in a single person, Jesus Christ. That's the belief we're being called to. The belief that God is no longer some distant, angry judge, just disappointed in us and disappointed in this world and will sort it all out, judgment in the afterlife, but something much better than that, that he's actually near and he's actually here through Jesus Christ. It's a belief. John 1, 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We're being called to believe that Jesus Christ is the light of heaven that gives light to the world. But that light was so new. That light was new. It wasn't anything that was generated by human beings, and so that light was rejected. Uh, John 1, 10, He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. His hometown rejected him. His nation rejected him. The religious powers rejected him. The political powers rejected him because his light was brand new and totally foreign. It's like, Jesus, you are giving pure love and pure grace and pure sacrifice and pure acceptance, and we don't like that. You must be done away with. They rejected him. He was fully accepting of all, forgiving of all. He loved everyone. He showed them the forgiveness and the grace of God uh, that comes from heaven without condition. He showed sacrifice. He endured persecution. He endured arrest, even the cross itself, because he was moving forward the love of heaven and the light of heaven through forgiving, merciful, sacrificial love. But there's this invitation that continues today. John 1, 12, but to all who believe him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So even though the world rejected this new light that was dawning through Jesus Christ, over time that light has been accepted by so many millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people celebrating Christmas, the light of heaven, Jesus Christ. The light we need is the belief in Jesus as the full expression of God himself. God is here. God accepts us as we are. He loves us as we are. 
He forgives us as we are of everything we've ever done and everything we ever will done. He forgives us. He embraces us with love, pure love, sacrificial love expressed through the, even the crucifixion of Jesus. But also this truth that there is resurrection ahead, that love cannot be buried. Love rises and love lives now and forever. Believing that is the true light. Now, I'm not asking you to believe something that can be proven. I cannot do that. I'm not asking you to believe something without doubt or questions. Use your brain, ask your questions. But I'm asking what Scripture asks. I'm asking what Jesus asks and just to simply make a decision of belief. I'm going to decide right now to rest my life on the unconditional, forgiving love of Jesus Christ that is the light of heaven. And when I believe that Jesus is the full expression of God, and when I believe I'm accepted by God and forgiven by God, embraced by God, when I believe that I am his daughter and I believe that I'm his son and I believe his love will never leave me no matter what, when I choose to believe that, even though I can't prove it and even though I've got questions, when we choose to believe that, the true light of heaven will blaze not just through Jesus but in us and through us, and that will make all the difference in the world. So I'm going to close with a prayer of belief. And some of you might have been in church forever, raised in church, literally born in the church lobby. I mean, I don't know. You might be a church person, like, beginning to end. But I'm not asking you to be a church person. There's a difference between that and truly believing that you are unconditionally loved by God through Jesus Christ. And that light can be in your life and through your life to impact the world around you. And so we're no longer fighting each other and bickering at each other and sending online condemnations to each other and no longer grumpy, religious, church-going people. We are the light of heaven, the light of the love of God. And that begins when we believe. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we have probably heard the Christmas story hundreds of times. We've gone through many Christmases and, and some of this can get kind of routine for people who have been in church a very long time. But God, if we strip away all the traditions and all the expectations, and perhaps even 2020 stripping down the message itself to something very simple, that this very basic belief that you love us and you've proven that through the gift of Jesus Christ can make this season and any season a pleasure because we know deep in our hearts that we are profoundly loved and treasured by you. And that was proven through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Born in humility, born a peasant, not seeking glory, not seeking fame, not seeking wealth, not seeking any of these things that we might consider to be light. But the true light of heaven is selfless, sacrificial love. And Jesus gave that to us. He embraced everybody without condition, even the ones labeled sinners by religious people. He embraced them, and he befriended them, and he ate with them, and he enjoyed them, and he loved them. And he loves us and forgives us purely by grace, not based on anything we've done. And, and so, God, we simply believe that. And by simply believing we are loved that much, that the true light of heaven, that new light that dawned through Jesus will be ours to receive and ours to shine out. As Jesus even says to us, we are the light of the world. Let our good works shine. Let the love of Christ shine through us. Let the love that we've received be the love that we give. This Christmas season and in the remaining days of 2020 and whatever 2021 brings, may we receive and give the love of Christ. 
In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen.